there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Scone Literary Festival. Supported by Writing New South Wales and Create New South Wales. With Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This panel is Diversity in Australian Literature. Thank you very much and welcome everyone to the Diversity in Australian Literature. I'm Benjamin Law. I'm really not, but Dad says I'm about the same size. I'm Sally Blackwood and I'm really privileged to be here, so thank you for having me into this incredible panel. I'm grateful to be here on the lands of the Wanaru people. I live uh, not far from here (laughs) uh, on Aboriginal land. And like all First Australians, they've been living here telling stories, sharing information for a millennia. Like all First Nations Australians, they continue to tell some of our most important and urgent stories. I'm grateful for the elders here and where I am in Gamilaroi country and where I grew up on Gadigal land and Darug land, past and present, that we continue the tradition here on Aboriginal land. Now... Malcolm Turnbull turned this into almost a cliché, but right now Australia, by some measures, is the world's most successful multicultural nation. Roughly one in five of us speaks another language other than English at home, Mandarin, Arabic, Cantonese, Vietnamese, Greek, Italian being the most popular. One in four of us was born overseas, and nearly half of us has one parent born overseas. And one in 30 of us is of Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander descent, members of the oldest human civilization on the planet, bar none. So obviously, Australia is diverse. And today we want to capture a range of these stories by discussing diversity in Australian literature by three of Australia's most eclectic, dynamic storytellers with us here in Scone. Our very first guest grew up in peaceful pre-revolutionary Iran before working many years as a journalist in the not-so-easy post-revolution Iran. Seven years ago, she embarked on a perilous voyage from Australia to Christmas Island in search of sanctuary, eventually arriving in Australia as a political refugee. Her first novel, The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree was written in Farsi and translated into English. This year it was shortlisted for the Stella Prize for Writing by Australian Women. Please welcome Shuka Feyazar. Our next guest, who was born in Israel, studied art in Vienna, lived a decade in New York and has been living and exhibiting in Australia since 1990. She has exhibited extensively in the capitals of Europe, USA and Australia and her art can be found in many public and private collections in Australia, 
and around the world. In 2007, Macmillan Art Publications published Notes from the Shed, an illustrated selection from her journal focusing on the creative process. In 2014, she commenced a PhD, which I understand is now finished, which is very exciting, um, project in visual arts at Sydney University, including a research field trip in China and a touring exhibition of the art component. Please welcome Hannah Kay. Our final guest is the director of Different Degrees Theatre Ensemble, a disability theatre company and drama group uh, for people of all abilities that meets to create self-devised theatre. He has worked in the field of disability arts for 20 years and prior to this he's worked as a lawyer, a teacher, an arts administrator, a youth worker, an actor and so on. This year he's also released a book, Choice Boy, a book on narcissism which I think is very apt since David Marr this morning talked about narcissism being born in scone. I thought that was beautiful. <laughs> Fictional but timely, some ways to say. Please welcome Larry Boyd. <clears throat> I'm going to kick off our discussion with a question for all our panellists. And it goes something like this. Australians regularly struggle to define Australian culture and identity, partly because there are so many different versions of our country. What is the version of Australia you know that isn't necessarily discussed, seen on screen or written about? And anyone can jump in. Everyone's looking to Larry. (laughs) (laughs) I think think they're pointing at me. Um, Okay, well... Can I upend that? Absolutely. Flip it over. Do. When I walk down the streets of Scone or Sydney, I don't see a lot of people struggling with their Australian identity. Am I Australian enough? Do I look Australian? If I buy that feta, will they think I'm not Australian? (laughs) Um, So I think people struggle with their daily lives with their identity. But the people who really tackle the issue are the arts community, are the historians, are the sociologists, um, the people who research society and its dynamics. Mm. So in in the world of the performing arts, in the world of the visual arts, one of the obligations is to try and reflect back to an audience, to a readership, um, something about the human condition in this country. And you take from it what what you possibly can. So for me, in Choice Boy, it, it's not really about narcissism. It's about masculinity. Yep. It's about men and about the relationships Similar. between men, between fathers and sons especially, and between brothers and between older men and younger men. So my central character is a, a he starts off as a 13-year-old boy and at the beginning of the book he's a 20-year-old single father of a four-month-old baby that he absolutely adores. He has been stripped of all his dignity, he has gone into what he calls the Neverland, and he's come out of it. And the question he asks himself is, what does it take to be a man? What does it take to be a proper father? If I can answer the first one, I know the answer to the second one. So throughout the novel, what he's learning is, there is no answer to the first one, what it takes to be a man, and there is certainly no answer to the second one, what it takes to be a proper father. 
there are men and there are fathers and the nature of love and the role it plays in a man's life is important between uh, in those relations between brothers, between fathers and sons. So in that, I'm interested in sex, love and romance and what the difference between those is, love between fathers, love between men. And at the back of it is why is it that so many Australian men lock themselves into this narrow way of being, mm. you know, that you, you've got to be one of the boys, you've got to be a bloke. Yep. And having spent 73 years not being a bloke, <laughs> I, I, I feel I've got an oversight from the outsiders to, to the condition of people who don't fit into that band and the deficits for the men who don't develop an interiority, a kind of a sensitivity, an emotional life, like women, a lot of women do. Thank you, Larry. It's not narcissism. <laughs> Thank you. This is a hard act to follow. And Jump in, Hannah. I will try. Well, first I have to make a disclaimer. I'm not a writer and I don't tell stories. So I'm very privileged to be here in a diversity about literature. <laughs> right. I did publish a book, but what I... The book that was published was about my writing mm -hmm. as an artist. So it's more reflection. But but does your art not tell stories? Not really. Mm -hmm. Not always. No, it doesn't really tell because stories. Because looking at your either. art yesterday, um, I was very privileged very to see some of Hannah's work hanging in um, Tamworth Regional Gallery yesterday. And <clears throat> looking at that artwork, you... I create story. You create me. a story. Absolutely. I don't make your story. Mm. I instigate you it. You facilitate so that, Yeah, perhaps. I facilitate, okay. but I don't tell stories. Mm. But, I, you know, being an artist, you are, I am very obsessed with being an artist, and I've always been obsessed with being an artist, and my whole life is geared into it. So... Very much like yours as a male, that you can understand. I go and see the world through being an artist. Mm -hmm. So I'll try to refer to your question with something that interests me about coming to Australia, being Australian. Uh, I came to Australia in 1990, and the first thing that struck me beside the light was the diversity in art. Now, I came from the world capitals of art, like New York, mm -hmm. Vienna, Berlin. You know, like at that time, there was a shift in art that was going on that was very one-sided. And if you didn't make art that was relevant to what was showing, you just couldn't fit yourself into a gallery. And I came to Australia, and I was surprised with not just the diversity of art, but the fact that people were purchasing it and, and very vibrant, I mean, like going to galleries. And, and over the years, I've been gravitating to people that, I always gravitate to these kind of people, it doesn't matter where I live, that are producing culture, that are mm -hmm. either academic or, or artist or writer. And, and what fascinated me here was, was the first time that I was in Melbourne and I was actually being visited by very prominent people here. 
And they invited me for dinner, and I came, and we were going to watch the footy. And I said, <laughs> what? What is footy? What is footy? <laughs> and I got a whole evening of lecture about Australian football. And I said, what? What are you doing with football? I've never watched a game in my life. Yeah. And I don't know anybody that watches games till I came to Australia. And that's an aspect of Australia that fascinates me. Mm. And this person who is quite well known, he's a politically well known and little, I will not say his name, uh, told me when I was so surprised that statistically it shows that people that go to the opera also go to football or watch sport. I went to Melbourne a couple of years ago and I went to see this friend of mine. One is a director of a museum, the other one is a gallery owner, the other one is an artist, the other one. And I was trying to have lunch with them. I said, not Saturday. I said, why? There's the grand final. <laughs> Now, it happened also last Tuesday, right? The yeah. whole country. It, doesn't it says a lot about Australian identity I, I already, think doesn't this, it? this is something that fascinates me still about Australia <laughs> because in the outside of the world, there is separation between people that watch yeah. sport and people that go to art here, and that's something that still fascinates me. It's a wonderful thing to hear. That's mm -hmm. really, that's, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to hear. Yeah, well, because there's always an art sport debate, which I think is very futile, and it's really interesting to hear that you found that. I find it fascinating. Combine, yeah. I still find it fascinating yeah. when I make a phone call and say, "You can't call on there. It's a grand final. It's a grand final sport." Shukafe. <laughs> oh, so I came to Australia as an asylum seeker. So it means I left behind my country, and I had no choice to just go and find a new place, safe place for myself. So I came by boat to Australia. I'm sorry. And I know that some people doesn't like that. <laughs> and, uh, but however, I've been in the camp only seven months and then I be permanent resident and just end of 2017, I got my citizenship finally. Yay. But the whole <laughs> process was, you know, many things happened during that I came to Australia and received to Christmas Island until I settled in the Geelong in Victoria. So the first thing for me in Australia was a democratic country. I came from a dictatorship. I came from the country such as Iran that everything is forbidden. Dance is forbidden. Showing your body is forbidden. Love is forbidden. Talking about politics and has a critical idea about politics is forbidden. So every single thing that you can feel as a live people, as a someone that who is live and has an idea and has an opinion, everything is banned. So... And also as a journalist in Iran, all newspapers all the time closed by government. So I remember one year, in one year, four um, newspapers that I worked there just banned by government. So mm -hmm. we established another newspaper and then they banned it. And again, we start another one and they, again, they banned it. So everything you feel, there is no way to just present yourself, to just feel who I am, you know, first of all, who I am, when everything is banned, how you want to try to find yourself, how you want to 
practice that, you know, I mean, practically find who you are mm. because you are forbidden to try to make experience. However, when I came to Australia, the first and most important things, and it still is the same for me, is democracy. I see this country that everyone can find their voice, you know, gay people, lesbians, and I don't know, politics, different ideas, different opinions, and... Uh, um, um, it's just fascinating for me that um, doesn't matter who you are, if you have a word, you can have your voice. And this is the most important things for me in Australia. And but as you mentioned, there are other many things that was so interesting. But me as a journalist and writer, when I received to Australia, the first place that I wanted to discover was bookshops. So I was so excited. I went to bookshops and I saw big bookshops. And then I tried to find my favorite writers, but I couldn't. It was so interesting because I found in Australia people read new books. They don't care how much a book would be amazing in, for example, 30 years ago. They don't care about that. They just want to read new books. Who is now in the market? Who want to read now? Uh, or, I mean, I mean, who is the famous now? Who won the prize now? So I try to find all of my favorite writers. They are modern, classic writers like, I don't know, Kafka, Marquez, Borges, Mar I don't know, Fuentes, and Mircea Elia. There are many, many writers, but... Tony Morrison, I couldn't find them. And then I tried to ask the bookshops, book what do you call them, bookshop uh, person, person who is in the bookshop, mm -hmm. and ask, do you have a book from, for example, a Nobel Prize writer of 2000, for example, 14? And they said, mm, let me, what is his name or her name? I said, how possible you don't know? <laughs> and they said, my job is to sell a book. My job is not to know books. It was so different for me because in Iran, when you go to bookshops, books persons, I, what, what you call the person who's the shopkeeper, bookshopkeeper, yeah. yeah, they are great book reader. You know, they yeah. they even guide you if you just go and say, for example, I like Marcus, but if there are any other writer that same solo like that, they introduce you. So, but in Australia, I find it is different. Maybe because the uh, bookmark market is really wild and very fast. So I find it is very different. So as a writer, it was first thing that I find, okay, I should learn more about what's going on in book markets. And also about, as um, uh, Hannah mentioned, so I found people goes to the football, people goes for, to, what is the name? Well, you're living in Geelong Horse. as well. Yes, so exactly. <laughs> you're not going to escape that at all. Find, <laughs> I just discovered that one day, Everywhere was closed and everybody was there in the Geelong, about horse? The Melbourne Cup? Melbourne Cup, and yeah. also about the footy, football yeah. or something. <laughs> anyway, I don't know at all about the sports. But it was really amazing. I love that. It shows that people, you know, have a place to all get together. So in Iran, this is one of the, our main issues, I think. So we don't get together because everything is mm. forbidden. But, for example, if you want to have a book launch, yes, you see many people come, but we don't have, a, you know, events that everybody comes to a street, like festivals, music festivals, dance festivals, food festivals, all is forbidden. So it was really nice for me. It was very experience for me that I see 
come together in a street and a street is a very alive place you know everybody comes have a dining they dance they have music festivals it's just fascinating before you came to australia what was your expectation Oh, I had and no, what was the reality? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I had no time to think about Australia because I didn't choose Australia. My smuggler chose Australia for me. So it means I found someone who just could help me to escape from Iran. And then he said, you can go by boat to Australia. And I said, I had no choice. I had just everything that happened so fast. And I said, okay, just let's go. And then when I came to Australia, so I knew Australia as a modern country, as a, I knew about some uh, special natures. But I, was, I had very little information about Aboriginal people. And then when I came, I loved it. I loved anything about Aboriginal cultures. And especially one of the fields that I always follow is uh, mythology. And I thought Mises in for Aboriginal culture is just mm. so fascinating. And I want to learn more about that. So I think Australia is an amazing country. I love that. I really love it. It's good to have yeah. you here. Absolutely. Can I ask you a little bit about the process of writing and translating um, The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree? Mm. And most of all, the responses that you received from Australian readers that either surprised you and that have stayed yeah. with you? Yeah. So the process of writing of this book was, uh, I, I wrote this book all in the midnights when my daughter was little and she slept. She was asleep at home. So it was a great time from, usually from, I start from 9, 9 p.m. to 3, 4 a.m. And it took me two years and a half in Farsi. And it's, uh, I wrote in three drafts until I find my own voice. So... My style of writing is magic realism and uh, literary, uh, literature, politicals, and also I use uh, many elements from our culture, our public culture, our mythology, and our legends. So uh, I had so many research for writing this book, and I wrote it in Farsi, and then when I finished in two years and a half, I tried to find a translator then, so it was another story. Mm. And then I should find a publisher, which was really difficult. I was totally new in this country, and I had no hope to find a publisher, to find a translator. So any things really happened one after one, and it was really took place in the right time, and everything was really good. The, the reaction and feedback from people was really surprising. My style is not really easy. It's... I know that this style is for people who love literature, who follow writers, I mean literary writers, and they know good information about literature and politics maybe. But I had no hope that Australian people like it because I knew mostly people like crime, criminal story, crime or fantasy or love stories. We know that before stories. lunch, don't we? <laughs> yeah. or love stories. And then I received many, many um, great feedbacks and I just thought that I'm so lucky that Australian are great book Hannah, I'm going to jump to you. Um, you've spent a lot of time um, working and living abroad. Um, what are other people's preconceptions about Australia? And for you, what is your reality? You've tapped into a little <coughs> bit of this essay, already. Dwight. That's not <laughs> one question. When, when, uh, when I was, yeah, when I was planning to come here, 
people will say, why do you go so far away? I mean, like, center culture. I mean, like, I did live in amazing places and that are very vibrant. And I actually said that I would like to be as far away from that place as possible. Mm -hmm. And for many, many reasons, which I won't get into it now. But the idea was that people in Australia are, they love their beer and football. And uh, not even <laughs> shrimps at that time. And um, why are you going there? You will die. You will. And apropos, I heard the same thing when I decided to move from Sydney to the Upper Hunter. I heard the same thing that that's what will happen to me. <laughs> so it was a good sign when I decided to move here. But so the first thing, as I said before, I was like shocked from the diversity of yeah. things. And by the way, I had a friend that came to visit me when I was living in Sydney and from New York, and she was staggered. She couldn't believe the amount of bookshops in this country. Mm. There's so many mm. bookshops. And I think that the experience of not having somebody explaining you and yeah. telling you is only new. Because yeah. <laughs> the bookshop was very, very welcoming and very, mm. yeah. But that's a different story. So I wasn't, I wasn't really expecting anything. I wanted to go as far away as possible and be able to, to do my art. And, uh, and the surprise was quite amazing because I came to a very vibrant place. And when I landed in Sydney the first day, just from the airport, my husband picked me up and he, I said to him, wow, he took me to CBD and I said, the energy here is just like mm, New York. Exactly. It just, and I, I almost felt like at home. Here I am, back in New York. In the, in. So this was the, the, the major thing that happened. And then I think the example of the surprise that I had with Australia came to, to, to highlight in the 2000 Olympics. Mm -hmm. when you had this opening that was just amazing. And I, I got all this feedback from overseas. They, wow, the Australians are very talented. We didn't know this. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the Australian cringe is a different story, that they think everything there is better. That's yeah. another thing that I found very irritating because when I lived in New York, Everybody wanted to exhibit in Tel Aviv, in, in Sydney, in anywhere but New York. When you come here, everybody wants to exhibit in New okay, York. Okay, so it's not just yeah. our cultural cringe then, it's <laughs> universal. It's, it's human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but here it's very strong, the cultural cringe. I, I found that people, whenever I, I met them, they assumed that I know better than they because I lived somewhere else. So they were sort of almost like apologetic about, oh, this is Australia. But no, it's everywhere else like this. So this, this is something that still annoys me because I still hear it. Yeah. And uh, but Australia was really very welcoming yeah. to me yeah. and and open. And I got the opportunity to exhibit and and sell. And, and really, I mean, like I I cannot even begin to complain. I mean, mm. I can't, can't say anything that is. And how has it influenced your work? Oh. Living in Australia, I think it took me about at least 10 years to get rid of the Northern Hemisphere angst. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and, and then I would say that living in the country and the... I, my, my work was always concerned with the environment and nature, but there was always 
other things that would be. But living here, mm. uh, the natural environment really influenced the way I started seeing the world also, not just my art. And the, the light was the main thing that influenced yeah. the way I work because it's very different, the light mm. here than the light there. Yeah. And the footy, of course. It's, the yeah. footy, definitely. <laughs> I still don't know how to what to watch for it. You know? <laughs> Larry, don't know where let, the ball is to be. Let me, let me jump to you, Larry. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you became involved in your theatre company? So different degrees, theatre ensemble, and why? Um, we lived in Melbourne for 15 and a half years, and I was working in arts administration. I formed a consultancy um, and a neighbour ran a community centre and she went on and on and on and on and on at me about, will you please, you work in theatre, will you please take this group of children with disability? And to my shame, but also to my rapid learning, had all of the baggage. I didn't want to be near them, I didn't want to touch them, I didn't want them touching me. I said, I don't do it. I'm not trained, I don't want to go anywhere near it. But she wouldn't let up. Then she said, I've got four weeks before the end of term. Please get me through this four weeks. So I went, and after an hour and a half, I was totally hooked. What I had regarded as people with nothing to offer, people who were wasted or empty spaces, there was so much energy, so much creativity to tap into, all um, untapped, all untrained. And... From there, I moved out to Dandenong, where, which is a very multi, 47 different languages in Dandenong when mm. I was there. So very multicultural and developed a theatre company there called Fusion Theatre, which is now really going very, very strong. And I had an image that this theatre company in Dandenong would be the counterpoint to back-to-back -back in mm -hmm. um, Geelong, which is a, a yeah. semi-professional. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about working with disabilities because it's an invisible community. I mean, people mm. have an awkwardness when they see someone with a disability. They don't know how to react. They don't know. So quite often people are very, very kind to people with disability. Mm. Whereas people with disability are not very, very kind about the outside world. <laughs> they regard them as mm. hostile. They regard them as um, not accepting. So that just fascinated me. And I got into it and realised that if you train them, as I do in, in Sydney and as I did in Melbourne, if you train people, give them the skills, they will work with you collaboratively to make new works of theatre. So last year, the show we did was a memorialisation of cult cultural artefacts which get destroyed. And the, the stimulus for that was the destruction of the, those fantastic ancient artefacts in the museum at Mosul when ISIS went in, I think it was 2013, and just smashed them into rubble. And so we created mm. a museum of sculptures, brought in four terrorists and pulled down the hoods. They, got, they smashed the statues. Then we shot the terrorists. Then we had an image of hope where the principal dancer was elevated above everybody else. They came back to life and they just moved off. So it's not unsophisticated theatre. It's and people afterwards came to people who are familiar with the project came and said, do you realise 
there are people in that audience who are in tears. That's an impact. That's yeah, good. absolutely. What's the mission statement of different degrees? Well, the mission statement is about inclusivity, about um, free, free of fear of any kind, mm. total acceptance, and everybody has a voice. So with some people with cerebral palsy or some people with various kinds of disability, you're never told what the disability is because of the privacy legislation. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've had two women in wheelchairs and one of them indicated to me, I got it three weeks later, that she can't talk because no one can understand a word she says. I said, you have a voice, the only voice you ever gave to have, you will talk on stage. The audience don't get it, tough. You know, so it's like exposing them. So the mission statement is to do all of that in a, in a quite warm, wrapped, friendly, accepting environment. Yeah, so creating, creating a safe space and so creating place space, and... Yeah. I think that's something that's um, come across. We're all talking a little bit about this freedom, whether it's freedom from fear or freedom to be in a democracy, mm -hmm. this diversity of possibility that we have here, which I think is really interesting. Laurie, one in five Australians live with a disability and those stories are rarely seen or heard. Do you have any theories why and why it's important to possibly have those stories? Oh, sorry. It's like all the stories which are not told. Why have we not embraced Indigenous culture and incorporated it into our understanding of this country and our way of living? They have the stories. They have the bads. They have the up. We buy the up. We pay thousands of dollars for it. Do we know Aboriginal people? Do we invite Aboriginal people? You know, there are so many stories where because of this way we restrict ourselves into these narrow bands, I think, there are invisible communities. Aboriginal people, thank goodness, are now taking a bit by their teeth and creating their own presence in their own way, their own radio programs, their own television programs, their own theatrical productions, their own writing. You know, fabulous, fabulous men and women doing that. Yeah, NITV and, and being able to see different faces on, on screen as well as hearing them, reading them, yeah. absolutely. People with disability are far less sexy. Definitely. You know, they don't move yeah. properly, they don't talk properly, you know, they've got these funny faces when they look at you, and people get terribly intimidated by that. Okay. Like people in a one-to-one -one conversation will get very intimidated by the way I'm talking now because it's not what men normally do, mm. you know. So I think it's just part of the spectrum about this invisibility. And the final years of the project in Melbourne were called Visible. Yeah. We're raising that profile, putting them into the public spaces so people could go, have they got a disability rather than, oh, they're a disabled one? Mm. Absolutely. And looking at what the ability is rather than looking at what we don't have, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Diversity, now I'm just going to ask everyone on the panel this, this question. Diversity is very much a, a buzzword. It's used a lot in corporate settings, so much so that, to some people, it's lost its meaning. What does Australian diversity mean to you personally, each one of you, and why is it so important? Okay, start from me. <laughs> so for me, I think, so to just, um, as I mentioned, for me, the first thing in Australia is 
the first important things in Australia was democracy and also um, free of speech. When I was writing mm -hmm. my novel, I, in some stage I stuck because I found I am deeply censoring myself when I'm writing. And then I said to myself, okay, you are in Australia. There is no fear anymore. Mm. You don't need to censor yourself anymore. So just write what you really believe, what you really want to say. And then I did it, which is, um, it was kind of, you know, finding myself exactly yeah. in a new country, a new culture, and also understanding myself better without censor who I am. I know myself before with so many sensors, okay, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that, but now I know, okay, if I want to do something, who I am now, and uh, these things, kind of things comes from the culture and countries such as Australia that everyone can have a voice. Yeah. And, you know, when you have many, many voices, it means everybody has right to just be Self or himself, and this is the most important part of things in Australia that I really value, and I find it without this sort of things, Australia wasn't this Australia, you yeah. know, I mean, it was kind of other countries that maybe, um, again, dictatorship, again, you know, kind of censorship was there. Um, but when we talk about diversity, when we were talking about different cultures, we talk about voices, as I said, you mm. know, Aboriginal should have their own voice. Uh, asylum seekers should have their own voice. And every single people who is allowed to live in this country, Israel's. Iran and Israel's, you know, our governments hate each other, <laughs> but we don't have any problem with each other. People have no problem. But yeah. we can discover this, discover this kind of things only in Australia. Yeah. You know, in the country like Australia, I can have my voice, she can have her voice, and we can find we don't have a problem. But our governments, of course, they don't like each other. And this kind of things happen only in the beautiful democratic country like Australia because everybody has voice. Everyone, yeah, everyone does have a voice, but we're talking a little bit about the invisible as well. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting, it's, isn't it? That there's a bit of a, a kind of, um, you know, yes, no we do, but where is, is the Aboriginal voice? Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. I think no well, culture is perfect, and every culture has uh, its own struggle and, you know, challenge. Yeah. So Australia has challenging with having, with giving voice to Aboriginal, maybe, to giving voice to, uh, um, for me, homelessness are mm -hmm. one of the type of people that always I think about them. You know, even gay have voice here, but, but homelessness, who supports homelessness? Who even see them? Mm -hmm. You know, we see many, many, uh, you know, organization or, you know, money comes from government to support, uh, you know, homosexuals or this kind of thing. But we don't see about uh, homelessness. Who see that? I didn't see in the last eight years that I've been here. Uh, or as uh, Larry mentioned, that disabilities also has no even enough voice, maybe. So each culture has its own challenge. And Australia has this kind of challenging that hopefully find the way to sort of solution. Yeah. Yes. Okay. In Sydney, hmm. there are theatre ensembles working with people who are homeless. Yeah. yeah. Milk Crate is yeah. one of them. There yeah. are, yeah. In yeah. Melbourne yeah. is also, in Geelong also, but still you find that they are so lonely. 
anytime that I see them around, especially in the Melbourne, I'm, and I think in Sydney is also, when you go in Melbourne early morning, you see homelessness all around of the main streets, asleep in the backpack, a bag, what you say, asleep bags. Mm. It's just so sad. Why is rich country like that? should have you know but but you're right you're tapping challenge. into our challenges yeah. and our yeah. struggles um what do you what do you think in terms well, of diversity for you I think diversity is as you said it's the buzzword and i find it you know like both larry and shukafei were saying you know like the the issues that are challenging for us as as human and the diversity of cultures and languages but i i think that the, the important part of having the discussion about diversity is to take it beyond the human race. I mean, like we do live in a certain environment mm -hmm. that is also diverse. And somehow the focus when you say diversity is, oh, culture, human, different kind of people, democracy, not democracy, which all very relevant and very good. But by, by being, by treating each other as diverse from us, as different from us. We also treat the environment as something other from us. Okay. And we have to, I think, start realizing diversity means also the, all the creatures that live in this planet and, and the, the environment, it's the, the trees, the desert, the, 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 what, what we do to the planet. And I think this is one of the hottest issues. I mean, I think there are two issues right now that are both are rooted in diversity, which the issues of the, it's the refugees and the, 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 the changing of the climate yeah. or the environment problem. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we talk about diversity, the more we realize, we might realize the issues that are facing us and mm. that they are diverse. So for me, diversity is much broader than just broader. the human condition. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Larry, did you want to add anything? Yes, look, I think diverse, we are diverse. There's no doubt about it. We've been diverse for a long, long time, since 1788, actually. Um, but diversity has to be more than a written policy document in some corporate office in a filing cabinet. And I think the, the real problems with diversity in those things, oh, we've got to have a diversity policy, we've got to be more diverse, is there is no tolerance. There is no acceptance and there is no actual inclusion. And you look at the great monocultures, the great unifiers in this country, like sport, like football, like AFL, and you have Aboriginal players, fantastic players, who leave the game because mm. of the racism. They get a salary, they, they do the training, but they find it intolerable to face up to that kind of thing and they leave all of that behind because they're not included because they're not tolerated, because they're not accepted. Acceptance so long as they kick goals, and then that moment is over. Mm. So I think it's, it's, it's very difficult, and it can be a trick. You know, so many places have diversity policies, and they're meaningless. There's words on paper. Yeah, it's person to person, isn't it? It's, yeah, person to person, and, and when that person yells out in a crowd to call them on it, and, yeah. As, Anna, as I mentioned in first of first page in my book, I just say thanks to Australian people who accept me in Australia and uh, let me 
to rights without fear of censorship. And could you please write it and read it because my English reading is awful. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. Are you sure you want me to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank okay. you. So this is uh, Shukafe's words. I would like to thank my father for teaching me to fly in the sky of literature freely. I owe a debt of gratitude to my mother, without whose support I would not be living in the free country of Australia, able to write without censorship. I am proudly grateful to the Australian people for accepting me to this safe and de democratic country where I have the freedom to write this book, a liberty denied me in my homeland of Iran. Yeah, so yeah. thank you. <laughs> you make me cry. <laughs> thank you. So, Thank you very much. Thank you thank to you. our incredible team. Thank, thank you, Shukafe. Thank you. Um, thank you to Larry and thank you to Hannah. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. If you enjoyed that session from the Scone Literary Festival 2018, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals that's where you'll be able to find all of the episodes from all of the festivals that we recorded in 2018 and the ones coming up for 2019 there will be many more episodes of the scone literary festival yet to come over the next couple of weeks so do keep your eye out in the feed and make sure you subscribe in apple podcasts spotify stitcher and wherever you get your pods you can find out more about the Scone Literary Festival at www.sconewritersfestival.com.au. Please like, share, you know, do all the communal things, tell people about us and give us a hoi if you have a festival coming up that you'd like us to record and be a part of. You can either send us a message through our Facebook page at Rights for Festivals or go onto the website and send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Until the next episode, keep reading, thinking and questioning. This podcast was edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. <laughs>